As we get into uh, the book of our study, continuing study in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, specifically looking at verses 18 through 20, this uh, charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so we're, we're, we're going to need to look at, at different aspects here. And anytime again, I think I've shared this with you before, and I'll share it probably a million times uh, again if the Lord uh, tarries. When you see threes, always go back for just a second. When you see threes, you should take note of that. In Scripture, and so a court, so the war, the good warfare is one through the prophecies which went before Scripture, uh, holding faith and a good conscience. There's three things that we need uh, to war a good warfare. So we're going to talk briefly about prophecies and faith because, in essence, we've done that in previous weeks. So go ahead, and, uh, Brandon. And prophecies and faith, and, and sp specifically looking at this reference in 1 Timothy 4, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. Now this is, we, we think prophecy is this, you know, we almost have this crystal ball kind of mentality about prophecy. Prophecy is the recording of scripture and teaching of scripture. And it isn't always the foretelling of something that's going to happen. So that's certainly one aspect of prophecy, but we need to, to look at it with a broader, a broader lens. So literally, the gift that is in uh, Timothy, his ability to teach, his ability to, to minister, was given him by the word of God with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. And so this, the gift came out of the word of God. In 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21, uh, we see prophecy, the word prophecy appear three times. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto we do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in, our, in your hearts. So it's it's even more sure than, than the being at the transfiguration and knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so... We have a more sure word of prophecy, and uh, it's not natural, but it's spiritual. It doesn't come out of the natural man. It comes out of the spiritual man. And so we've seen the prophecy component, so let's briefly touch on the faith component. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the action, much like, and we'll see in another verse here in a, in a moment, much like chari charity is the personification of love. It's the action of love. Faith is similar. Faith has a tangible component to it. And I'm not talking about if I stare at that mountain and I have faith to move the mountain, it'll move. But I have faith this morning that trotters in heaven. Like, that's a tangible thing. It tangibly affects my grieving. It tangibly affects the way I perceive the events around his death. I have absolute faith that I will see him again. Like, I don't know how else to say it. I just have faith and it, it, it makes an impact. It's a tangible thing. It's substantive. Okay. But we saw the threefold in, in 1 Timothy 18 that it's prophecies or scripture. It's holding faith. 
and it's good conscience. And there's a kind of a parallel concept. If you look at the next, uh, the next slide, charity is a key for function. And, and we're not going down this path of charity, but, I, but it's important to notice. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith. So beyond scripture, beyond understanding mysteries and knowledge and beyond faith. So in addition to prophecy and faith, the other two concepts of knowledge and understanding, even though I have all four of those things so that I could remove mountains, if I have not charity, I'm nothing, right? Paul writes. So charity is a key for function in this concept, okay? Charity is a key for function in this concept. Prophecy and faith are literally limited by charity. <clears throat> if you don't have charity, prophecy and faith are limited, okay? So the reason I wanted to show this to you is the warring a good warfare that Paul is encouraging Timothy to do, he says comes three ways. Through prophecy, the understanding of scripture. Through faith, kind of the application of that spiritual man, but also of a good conscience. And I'm going to let you know, I don't, I don't know that I've ever studied the conscience before in scripture. I mean, it's this concept that I just kind of gloss over, just being transparent with you. And so this brings us to our first discipleship decision. Scripture and faith are not, and, and I put in air, kind of air quotes, sufficient are not alone. Um, are, yeah, are not alone. I, is, uh, is the, the word alone ought to be in there. I apologize. So scripture and faith alone, is that's your fill in the blank, are not sufficient for the warfare. The devils and other bad actors have scripture and they have a form of faith. They understand what God can do. Without a good conscience, the word of God and faith are limited. And we're actually going to see as, as we progress in our study this morning that there's a bad form of conscience that actually can do damage. So not only would you not be able to war effectively, you can actually do collateral damage to other people with this key component of a good conscience. Now, are scripture and faith vitally important? Absolutely. That's why I put a little bit of caveat as, as we began, as we began, because I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to come up here and tell you that we should have situational spiritualism. Right, like situational ethics, where in one case something's okay. It's like it's okay to lie if you do this. Well, no, it's not. Like I'm not going to put forth situational spirituality. Okay, I'm not that scripture and faith, in and of themselves, are also important, vitally important. But we can't glance over the concept of a good conscience. So I tried to create, and on your on your your sheet you have a diagram. So in just a second, he's going to flip this, and you're going to want to write a bunch of words. And that's fine. If you're filling out your form, you can write a bunch of words. But I don't want you to miss the point, okay? The point of this is not to leave with a filled out blank or a filled out piece of paper. The point is to understand it. So if you go ahead and advance, this image is the way I... So I, I kind of doodle and I move things around on the, I don't doodle like Sam doodles. 
That man likes to doodle. He <laughs> loves the doodle. Okay? So I'm not going to do that here. Okay? That's his thing. But the three components, faith, prophecies, and a good conscience, all go into warring a good warfare. Okay? For us to have the ammunition we need to fight our spiritual warfare, we have to have faith. We have to have the prophecies, which is the word of God, and we have to have a good conscience, okay? But I want to spend just a couple of moments on these smaller words. So when you overlap faith and prophecy, faith and scripture, you get things like inspiration, okay? The inspiration of the word of God. We believe the word was, the word's of God were written by men of old time that God led them to write those words. The inspiration of scripture happened and we believe it by faith. I don't, I've never met those people. I've never met Moses. I've never met Paul and Luke and all the other folks that wrote scripture, right? Daniel, right? I've never met those folks. So I have to overlap faith with scripture, right? I have to do the same thing for the concept of preservation, okay? For the preservation of scripture. I've met people who are Christians, I believe they're saved, who don't believe the word of God exists on the face of this earth. Because once it was penned, it left. Once it was originally written down, those words are gone. And I'm like, I don't even know how you function. Like, I can't, like, I, where do you put your authority? Like, I don't know how to, I don't know what, to, I literally don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Because I choose to believe, choose to believe through faith that the word was also preserved. Amen. Preserved for us so that we can understand it. Okay? Now, when you overlap scripture and good conscience, you get the concepts of doctrine and application. Okay? Doctrine and application. So I may know prophecy. I may know scripture. But if I don't approach it with a good conscience, it's never going to make an impact. It's never going to move me. Okay? It's never going to apply to my life. I'm never going to have good doctrine. Okay? So again, this is just a, I mean, you can take it or leave it. You can burn the piece of paper when you get home. Just do it safely if you want. So this was, all, all of these things are pointing toward a good warfare. Paul is trying to mature Timothy because he's going to be a pastor. He's a pastor over people. And Gordon stood up here and as a pastor clearly had, you know, key moments. And I, and I felt a little bad my suspicion is he's had a lot of those kinds of moments where he's not thinking about them or maybe he minimizes them because it's, it's his job, it's his ministry. But he's probably had those kinds of moments where he's made an impact in a young person's life or their mother or father's life. And now he's starting to, to reap the benefits by seeing it, right? Reaping the benefits of, of the blessing. Right, so so we're gonna have to spend some time on a good conscience. We're just gonna have to spend some time this morning on a good conscience. So the next slide talks about insight into a good into conscience. 
So this is a complicated, so like if we thought creation was complicated this morning, it's, like this is a little complicated too, all right? Man, people are a triune being. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. Those are your three major blanks, a, a spirit, a body, and a soul. The spirit is the part of us that communes with God. It was dead, but became alive in Christ. Our body is our flesh, right? We have things like senses and reflexes, right? These are our tangible things. We have, we have movement that when I, when I was in, when I was learning to do uh, the profession that I was learning to do, I learned about different types of reflex systems in your body. And I didn't know, it was so cool to learn that if you burn, if you, if you were reaching for the oven and you, your the mitt slipped out of your hand or something, you burned yourself, you, you got burned, right? For in the stove or the oven or whatever, that your body, as you pull this back, your body has a primal, very instinct reflex to move the other hand forward just a little bit to help balance your movement, to actually help you pull that reflex back. Things like jumping back from a spider when you see a spider, like these reflex kinds of things, you don't think about them. They're not part of your soul, they're part of your body. And disease processes, injuries, things that happen, car accidents, falls down the stairs, whatever, that can damage those reflexes are not damaging your soul or your spirit, they're damaging your body, right? Now, your soul is your personality or your per persona. It's, it's who you are. It's the differences in, in the, 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 the people that we are that God made us. And, and within that, and there's a lot of different schools of thought, and this is, I'm just giving you like a real high-level view of my study. There's at least four areas of your soul, four aspects of probably a better term. Your emotion, right? This morning... Watching the video of Mark Trotter, I knew what was going to happen as soon as the, I started watching the Malawi uh, people singing. I knew we were going to see him, and I still got emotional. Like, it's a thing. It's the ability to feel. And a lot of times in Scripture, this, these are not hard fast, but a lot of times in Scripture, it's your heart. It's the, word, the word that's communicated is your heart, Right? because it's emotional component. There's a cognition component, the ability to know something. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. That's cognition. There's no emotion to that. Doesn't matter how I feel, the alphabet's not changing, right? <laughs> I also don't have to figure anything out with the alphabet. I just know the alphabet is a, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. Right? There's a concept of deduction. Oh, and that and that word is almost almost always in your Bible. Your mind. Okay, not always, but almost always translated the concept of your mind. Then there's the ability to deduce deduction. Okay, and that's taking the alphabet and turning it into words. And if there's a word you haven't seen before you can sound it out or put it in context 
or understand its basic parts and get close to what it means. That's just a concept of deduction, okay? And that is the ability to understand or what scripture will call wisdom or understanding, okay? So uh, this is not a hokey pokey or hokey, hokey pokey or turn yourself around. <laughs> not a hocus pocus kind of thing. It's not weird. It's scriptural. Sorry, I disappointed you. I mean, um, it's it's not. Uh, these aren't concepts that I'm pulling from the four winds to try to you know get your get you a degree in psychology, right? These are these are ways. These are ways that we are described in scripture. Us, okay? But notice this last one is conscience, and conscience is to the ability to perceive moral or uh, morals or right from wrong, okay? It's the ability to know, I saw on Facebook this week, I don't remember, I think it was Michelle's sister, nobody told me I didn't have to put glue in my hair, I've just always known it. Like, <laughs> like I think it was her sister, like, and I think she was reposting. Like yeah, so, like, there are things that we know are right and wrong. Like, I know it's wrong just to walk up and punch somebody in the face. It's wrong. I know it's wrong to kill. <laughs> And one of you showing up on March 6th, 5th, is going to be a killer. Maybe, hopefully it's out of the other fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the ability to know right from wrong. And I do think that, and we'll see, we'll see scriptural evidence of, of this. You know, again, I think you'll, you'll see that this, I'm not, I'm not like reaching here. And Paul, remember the background, Paul specifically tells Timothy, if you want to walk the spiritual walk, if you want to fight the good fight, if you want to win the spiritual war, you need to have a good conscience. He literally put it down, so we need to understand it. So, so additional insight, if you advance to the next slide, there's a couple of slides here. Conscience is convicting, okay? We are convicted. Now, the Holy Spirit does convicting. This is a little bit different, but this is where the Holy Spirit can work in us, right? John 8 and 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, right? Everybody wants to stone her. She's guilty. Cognitively, they know she's guilty. Deduction, they know she's guilty and therefore should die. Okay, but through conscience, Jesus um, utilizes, I was going to say plays, but Jesus doesn't play like that. He utilizes their conscience to know that only he that is without sin should cast the first stone, right? So they're convicted by their own conscience. Conscience is directive. It can be directive. Acts 24, 16. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward men, uh, toward, uh, toward God and toward men. Right? So it directs me. Literally, I know this is going to sound a little trite. I'm not going to like walk past you in the hall downstairs and be like, get out of my way. Like there's something about that that's not right. 
You do I mean, it all the time. I, that just to you, Willie. No. Just to you. Mo- I should have realized that, yeah, because to you, Willie, I will do that. I will. And then I'll turn around and throw something at him just for good measure. So, but the point is, our conscience directs us to put bounds. Do we, does our conscience learn over our lifetime as a, as a kid? Sure. We learn those boundaries, right? But those boundaries are applied to our conscience, not... Sure, there, there is a component of kids that say, if I talk back, I might get slapped. Therefore, I won't, get, uh, therefore I won't talk back. But that is building a moral compass within their conscience, okay? Conscience is primal. And I debated, debated with myself. It was, it was quite the funny uh, uh, argument. I wish you were there in my head. Um, I could have used the word innate or God-given or deep within us. But I'm going to argue that primal is the right word. Look at Romans 2.15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So within the context of Romans chapter 2, there's uh, a lot going on there. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But the law of... Uh, the work of the law written in the hearts. This is primal to us. This is not situational. You can go across lands and continents and countries and people groups, and there are certain things that are consistent because it's primal. It's written by God in our hearts. It's in us, okay? It's within us. Conscience is witness. Romans 9, 1, uh, 9, 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing, uh, also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Literally, your conscience talks to you. I know that sounds a little weird. I don't know how else to say it. But have you ever thought, I shouldn't do that? Mm-hmm. That was your conscience. <laughs> Literally, convincing your mind and or your body not to go there like this is i contend that most psychology degrees are simply people explaining biblical concepts like these things i mean there are some things that get a little wonky in i guess any profession but these concepts I believe are scriptural. Maybe they have different words. Maybe you, maybe you don't like some of the words I've, I've, I've put on here. But your conscience will literally give you witness on what to do and what not to do. Go ahead and advance to the next slide. Conscience is accountable. Now look at this passage in Romans 1, 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... So the cognition part, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then there's a series of things that happen, being filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, um, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. All of those things come from not wanting to retain God in their knowledge, and they literally squash the cognition point. So look at what happens with the um, with their um, 
with their conscience, knowing who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which, which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So conscience holds us accountable. It keeps us on the road. It literally helps us avoid any and all of these things if we apply a good conscience. Put God in the right place in our mind. So we have conscience options, okay? So hopefully, and you guys are doing a good job listening fast, so I appreciate that. So we have conscience options. Now, one of these is our default state, the first one. The rest are choices we make, okay? The rest are choices we make. Our evil conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart in, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Literally, when you get saved, if you are in this room right now and you are listening and you are saved, you were removed from an evil conscience. Okay, maybe you didn't go kill anybody, but there was still part of you that was not wanting to commune with God. And according to Romans uh, 1, chapter, uh, verses 28 to 32, you might have been unrighteous, a fornicator, wicked, covetous. I mean, I was, I was super covetous before. Uh, malicious, envious. Um, and then it gets like murder and debate. and But even like whispers back, like all those things are the default state of an evil conscience. Those are the default state. Now, you can have, so we're going to look at, it's at uh, two, five other states, okay? There's six states that I could find in Scripture. Might be able to argue for one, maybe two more, but I think they fall into these buckets. You can have a defiled conscience. Now, it kind of is what it sounds like. A conscience that has been exposed to bad things enough times that it's now dirty. It's defiled. How would a temple be defiled? People would bring bad things, things that strange fire, strange smoke, strange offerings into a temple. That's how a temple was defiled, right? Or they would offer something that wasn't what was being asked to offer, right? So when you put inappropriate bad things into your mind, into your cognition, into your deduction, into exposing your, your eyes or your, your body to senses, you can defile your conscience. And literally, you start thinking differently. You start rationalizing that which is wrong. And it's real interesting how this works. And honestly, the, the, the counseling that I have done most often is reversing this concept. It's reversing the defiled conscience because people will say things like, well, they don't love me anymore, therefore I can have an affair. What? Like, that doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud. But in their mind, they're there. Like, they are there. They're no longer in love with their spouse, therefore they can go be in love temporarily with this other person. They have a defiled conscience. Their conscience is no longer pure okay and we'll see that in a moment 
So Titus 1, uh, 15, under the pure, all things are pure, but under them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But look at this, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. No longer do they take two and two and come up with four. Their conscience allows them to rationalize that the second two is actually a three. And the sky isn't actually blue. And you can sit across from them at a Panera. You can talk with them in discipleship. You can counsel with them as a, as a friend in Christ or as a, as a, as a leader in them, with them in ministry. And they will say things that don't make sense. But I love them. God told me to do this. God told you to do something that was in contradiction to his scripture? I don't think so. And, and like if you could record it and play it back for them at another point in time in a pure, like it wouldn't even make sense. Their conscience literally has become defiled. You can have a seared conscience. And I tried to put these in worst to best, okay? Not in order of scripture, but kind of worst to best. You can have a seared conscience. Now this is, so, so I almost always hear the example of a good burger or a good steak, right? So you can sear the outside of a piece of meat with extreme heat, hotter than you would otherwise cook it, so that the outside of it seals and you keep the juices inside. She sings with me. Okay. You keep the juices inside the piece, like you literally sear it so that it retains its, its moisture, okay? Or it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's moisture, I guess, right? The interesting thing about that is on a piece of meat, in theory, you could take it off the, the grill or off the flame, whatever it is, and you could slice that little piece of searing off and what would happen? The, the juices would flow, those sorts of things, right? In a seared conscience, you can actually undo this, okay? And that's the beautiful thing about the conscience is it's kind of like a muscle, and it can be exercised. It can be brought, it's like the, the flesh. It can be brought under, we can bring it under and bring it into subjection. It's no different than our brain that can learn something new, our cognition, our emotion, right? We learn to control our emotions different ways, right? We know that it's, there's times that it's okay to weep and there's times that you need to get over it and you need to, to, to grow up or you need to get yourself under control, right? Who's ever been around a, a terrible two having a tantrum, right? You, you, there's a point at which you got to get over. You're not going to have that piece of candy right now, right? So you can get over a seared conscience. First Timothy 4.2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with this hot iron. So they're willing to speak lies and hypocrisy when you get seared. And again, similar to the defiling concept, I debated on which one of these was worse. They're probably similar. They're different in the sense that a seared conscience becomes numb. Numb to what it's exposed to. Okay? And some, and believe it or not, God built this in us. It's a coping mechanism. There are some kids that are exposed to extreme hardship, and they have to sear their conscience to some degree just to survive. This is so, so much like a muscle is supposed to move, much like a reflex, much like all these different things, maybe with the exception of a defiled and, and um, uh, evil conscience. A searing conscience concept is 
to protect yourself, or it can be to protect yourself. So you have to soften it up. It's literally like the hard ground and the illustration that Christ shares when he says sharing or that the word of God is in some people like it's a hard ground. You have to break it up. And there are techniques, we don't have time to talk about them, to unsear the conscience. And then there's concept of a weak conscience. In first uh, first Corinthians eight twelve. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. There are some people that kind of don't know how to handle things. And they're soft. They're really soft. Arguably the opposite of the seared conscience. Like everything kind of hurts their feelings. And I've ministered in and around some of these folks, and I try not to be this guy from time to time. There are times when I get a little pouty. My wife will, she's like, amen, back there. There are times when, like, everything kind of hurts my feelings. And that's a weak conscience, right? There's spouses whacking spouses on the, on the legs right now, and I can see them. Um, if you go to the next slide, the, the good conscience. So now we're getting, we're moving into to things that we should do, right? Hebrews 13, 18. I pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Like, I'm trying. I think, you know, I think I've shared before. There are times when I've tried to minister to people and I've done it clunkle, clunkily. I just made up a word. Clunkily. <laughs> going to be uh, Webster's new word in 2021, clunkily. I've done it in a manner that maybe wasn't as smooth as it should have been, but I did it in a good conscience. I did it out of love. I did it out of a good place. Now, we still have to mature, but First Peter 3.21, li- uh, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would argue, based on that verse and other supporting verses, you cannot have a good conscience outside of salvation in the Lord. Like, you can't have a good conscience. Your conscience will be defiled. And a pure conscience. 1 Timothy uh, 3.9, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. So now, Timothy, uh, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, and we'll get to this, hold the faith of mystery in a, in a pure conscience. Don't like you, you weren't given the knowledge of that mystery to lord it over anybody. Give it out, out of a pure conscience. In Second Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. So, hey, Paul thought he was killing Christians with a good conscience though, remember? So you can't just have a good conscience. What do you have to balance it with? Prophecy or the word of God and faith. Like you, it is a three-legged stool. You need all three aspects of that concept in order to move forward in warring a good warfare. Go ahead and advance the next. So this brings us to our second discipleship decision. Your conscience is an important facet of who you are. Keep it. Keep it. Don't allow it to become seared. Certainly don't allow it to become defiled. And if you're not saved, you're never going to get out from under an evil conscience. Okay? You might function, you might live a perfectly peaceable life, but you won't get out from under it. 
So now it brings us back to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verses 18 to 20 when he says, um, this, I, this charge I commit unto thee, if you'd advance it for me, Brandon. This charge I commit unto thee, my son, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest by them, or by them mightest war good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. But look at this, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. So when you mess with the prophecies, when you mess with faith, when you mess with good conscience, especially in others, you literally will make shipwreck. Okay? Now, I believe there is a component of, I think the word is soliloquy here, that Paul was using. I think that's the word. It's an illustration, right? That, like, back then they didn't have train wrecks, right? Now we say, oh, wow, Dobson preacher was a train wreck, right? <laughs> But they, I think they would have said something to them back then of, boy, Dobson preaching, that was like a shipwreck, right? Because they dealt with shipwrecks, right? They didn't have cars and, and automobiles. So there's a, the next slide has two pictures. Which one of these is a shipwreck? I see Jamie pointing to this one. This is a tornado, believe it or not. This is the result of a tornado. That's really bad. But this is what it looks like after a shipwreck eventually. It's just gone. There were people who were here last year, and now they're just gone. There were people that we used to minister beside. Now they're just gone. There's a period of time where there was collateral damage, you know, the box or the board washes up on the shore. You know, we see the, the mast floating in the thing, but eventually it's just going to sink. Now it's there. It's underwater or eaten up. I don't know. We we went on a glass-bottom boat tour years ago. Up, We went up into the UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and out on the Great Lakes. And you can, you know, go on the – and I, I don't know what I had in my mind, a glass-bottom boat tour. I expected to be a lot of glass. Well, the glass was like this big, and you just kind of looked over. But anyway, it wasn't as grand as I expected it to be. So if you go, I'm not endorsing it. But, but it was kind of a – it was a bummer. But we still went over ships that wrecked in the 1700s and the 1800s, and you can see the wrecks are still there. There is collateral damage. The pieces are still laying at the bottom of the, in that case, the Great Lake. But it looks like this to everybody else. It's just gone. They're just gone. So when you make a shipwreck, it often complete, uh, it, it creates a complete loss. There, very, like I say, very little may wash up on the shore. But a shipwreck leaves just complete loss. Takes an amazing amount of time of work to restore. If I go to that tornado uh, picture, there's still pieces of paper. There's still pictures that you can gather. Yeah, they're scattered over the country mile. But in a lot of cases, it's salvageable. In a shipwreck, what Hymenaeus and Alexander did, man, they left utter destruction behind them. And we'll see how they did it. Can lead to this collateral damage or people damage. After a while, the memory of the before and all the events that are, they're just gone. It's just done. Maybe it ends up in a, in a great Gordon Lightfoot song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Somebody was with me, right? I mean, it's a great song, but all that remains, according to, to Mr. Lightfoot, are the faces and names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. Like, the collateral damage is real. 
It can be caused by carelessness or in some cases maliciousness or external forces like weather in a shipwreck if you're not careful. Like you've got to tend to the boat. Remember, it was it a couple years ago, the guy was let some in the Mediterranean, he let some girl drive the boat for a little bit and like wrecked it. And do you, anybody remember that? And the boat was like sitting like this for, I meant to pull a picture up of it. It was like in the Mediterranean, they had to evacuate everybody and a couple people died. I mean, it was a bad deal. I mean, uh, you know, for all, for all intents and purposes, it could have been a lot worse, but because the, uh, as I remember the story, like the captain let a girl that he was trying to, you know, get to, to like him or whatever, drive the boat. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, frequent. And so this is interesting. This term making shipwreck or phrase is frequent in Greek writings from that period of time. You can go back and you can see this kind of soliloquy that, that Paul is using that back in the day, lives could be left in shipwreck. And it literally means to break. So let's look at Hymenaeus and, and Alexander here uh, on the last slide here, Brandon, if you could, or second to the last slide. So also, over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16 through 18, t uh, Paul tells Timothy to, sh look at this, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as, uh, as uh, doth a canker, of whom Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and to overthrow the faith of some. Literally, they're shipwrecking people through the worse of uh, through the use of profane and vain babblings, ungodliness. Their word will eat as a canker, so they'll just dabble it out there and let the problem fester. Right? They'll just dabble out there. I'm, I'm not sure Sam's... I mean, do you see the way he was doodling? That dude's got something wrong with him. They'll just leave it out there. And the next thing is, I'm not sure Sam's decision-making is the best in the world. You know? Did you see that what we did as a church, we put all this money in whatever? Really? Think that's wise? So their word will start eating as a canker. And they err concerning the truth. They're literally wrong concerning the truth. And they want that out there. Now, there's look. I, I I think I've said a few times in this in this fellowship, and will continue to do so. I'm not 100 percent right. I know that there have been times that I've stood in this very spot and said things that when I went back and look, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe that wasn't right. So I know I'm not batting a thousand with y'all. I do have a good conscience about it, but I know I'm not going to bat a thousand. But these folks, man, they're just dogmatic that their way, and if you don't believe exactly 100% like them, you're the one that's the problem. Those folks make faith shipwreck. Those folks take people with them, and I don't just mean to another ministry, I mean they literally pull people out of a good place and they crumble them and all that's left is scattered remains for a period of time, and then it'll sink to the bottom of the ocean, and everybody will forget about them. And they literally overthrow the faith of some. Alexander is tied to, so Hymenaeus and Alexander are mentioned in 1 Timothy. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy, uh, but so is Alexander, or in 2 Timothy 2, Alexander in chapter 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Like, I don't need to kick him in the shins. God's got that, right? Of whom thou be thou ware also, but be be mindful 
for he hath greatly withstood our words. He did evil, and he withstood the words. He withstood the, the rebuking that came through the through scripture. He literally withstood. He no, I don't I don't care what you have to say. I'm living my life the way I want to live my life. Well, you're taking people with you. Well, so be it. And those kinds of conversations, unfortunately, have happened in this ministry. Where people are not willing to 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 to, to small themselves for the purpose of the ministry. They're not willing to to humble themselves. What do they have? They have something wrong with their conscience. Okay? This is, uh, and I realize, uh, I know, maybe I make too big of a deal sometimes on specific words, but I had never studied good conscience before. I'd never really dived into it. But there, I I think there's even more of a goldmine there than I even touched on. Go ahead and go to the last slide for our last discipleship decision. Will you avoid those who will do collateral damage to you and to others? And avoid is, is is a little bit of a strong word. I get it. I get it. But you know how to avoid a good shipwreck? A, a little bit of distance. Yeah, that's exactly right. Steer clear. Don't get, on Either, the ship. don't get on that ship. Don't hit your ship to their ship. When they start going toward the rocks, you don't go toward the... Like, the like yeah. I mean, it, it is pretty simple. When the Holy Spirit starts convicting you and you start getting a feeling like, what is that person up to? Like, that feels weird. Like, that seems awkward. Well, maybe that's the Holy Spirit telling your conscience to steer clear. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for how Paul was investing in Timothy, telling him and instructing him to not only hold on to the prophecy, to the to Scripture, but also to hold on to his faith. So many times it's talked about, but even this good conscience that we need to process this information. We need to have a good moral compass. And that's not, that doesn't get us saved. That doesn't help us in our sin nature. It doesn't, we can't be good enough, Lord. Our, our consciences are arguably, arguably evil. And, and Lord, I, for those who have never placed their, their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on, on Calvary's cross, I pray that this message and everything that you're doing with the Holy Spirit in their life would point them to help them understand they have a need that only you can meet. Lord, we trust you for how you're continuing to grow us as we study how Paul was growing Timothy. Help us to be more mature. Help us to take the next step in our spiritual maturity. And in this case, Lord, help us to have a good and pure conscience. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great day.